Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Nonprofit Exchange. The Nonprofit Exchange is sponsored by Word Sprint. Word Sprint is helping you stay in touch with your tribe. You have donors, you want to stay in touch with them. Top of mind marketing, you send them something in the mail. And so they know the good work that you're doing. So when it comes around to donation time, there's no explaining it. They are ready with their checkbook to write you that next check. So we turn donors into annual donors. We turn donors into advocates for our work. Our guest today is Mr. Robert Day. Robert Day um, works in an organization. He's the leader at Patrick Henry Family Services. And so I'm going to ask Robert to tell a little bit about himself and his passion for leadership. And then, Robert, please tell us uh, after that a little bit about the work. I've put a little bit on the, uh, on the landing page for this interview, but do tell us a little bit about the work of Patrick Henry Family Services. So, Robert, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange, and I'm eager to hear how you describe your background. Thanks, you. I appreciate you having me on today. Uh, so as you mentioned, my name is Robert Day. I'm the CEO of Patrick Henry Family Services. Um, I have uh, a master's in social work and a master's in divinity. So I've kind of taken two professional paths, uh, one in ministry and, and one in social work. Uh, but all my life, I've been in the nonprofit world in one way or the other. Um, but the story of how I got to Patrick Henry is really more of a personal journey than a professional journey. Uh, despite the fact that I got two master's degrees, I'm the CEO, I'm a homeowner, a taxpayer, registered voter, I, I call myself a recovering orphan. Mm. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that uh, despite that I'm almost 60 years old, um, I'm still occasionally haunted by a spirit of orphanhood. You see, I was uh, literally born into the foster care system. My mom was 16 when she gave birth to me and she was in the custody of the state of Tennessee. She had been removed from her uh, family uh, for abuse and neglect. In fact, it was a horrible uh, crime that uh, came uh, to the attention of the state um, uh, when they discovered that my mom was being abused and neglected. And so she was put in an unwed mother's home uh, and it was while she was there that I was born. Uh, she recently put me up for adoption and um, she was placed in a foster um, home in East Tennessee. Uh, the foster parents of my mother, George and Joanne Ball, when they learned that I was up for adoption, they asked the state if they could foster to adopt me. And uh, so they made an unusual decision. They actually placed me in the same foster home with my mom with the intent that those foster parents would adopt me. Uh, and the story goes that when I started uh, talking, I called my mom sis because I thought those foster parents were my parents and she was my sister. Uh, but for reasons I've never uh, been able to learn or discover is that the adoption didn't take place. And when my mom aged out of foster care at 18, she made a fateful decision that I regretted my entire life. She took me with her. And so I was a child being raised by a child, but more than that, an under-resourced um, and uh, traumatized child. She grew up in 
abject poverty um, and abuse and neglect. She didn't know her father. Uh, she had a very mean mother. And so uh, my childhood and adolescence was um, just uh, a string of chaotic events after another, uh, drugs, alcohol, domestic violence, crime. Uh, and so because of that, I was in and out of the foster care system myself. And I, at, at age 10, I was actually placed back in the same home that I was when I was born, uh, George and Joanne Ball. And that's how I learned the first part of this story. Um, but <clears throat> through, through their faithful um, uh, care of me and because they uh, prayed for me every day of their life, um, I, I made it through childhood and made it through adolescence. Uh, I, I often say that uh, it was Christ that saved my soul, but the local church saved my life because of individuals in local churches who would see this poor kid walking into church looking for a connection and sometimes looking for something to eat. And so that kind of explains my, my passion of why I've been in uh, the child welfare um, industry, so to speak, and why I've been doing nonprofits and why I've uh, pastored churches and, and done ministry at the same time. Uh, and this is eventually what brought me here to Patrick Henry 2010. I, you know, even though I've um, uh, long ago cried out, Abba, Father, and was adopted into the spiritual kingdom, I, I, I find myself um, wondering if um, sometimes if anybody loves me or if anybody really cares. Um, now, it's not as often as it used to be or not as severe as it used to be. That's why I call myself a recovering orphan. That's an interesting story. And, and I, so tell us a little bit about the work of Patrick Henry and how that's relevant to your story there. Sure. So Patrick Henry started out in 1961 as a children's home on the former estate of Patrick Henry, patriot who said, give me liberty or, or give me death. Still two choices we have today, right? Uh, liberty or death. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the children's homes were the, the latest uh, um, and greatest version of the old orphanage model. Um, but since I've uh, come, we've, we've really uh, transformed as an organization. We still do some residential care, but most of our children are placed with families now. Uh, we do uh, a lot of prevention and early intervention so that children don't have to be separated from their families. Or if they do, that it is uh, as brief as possible. We, we do a number of services and programs for, for vulnerable children and distressed families, but you can basically put them in, into the three categories. We have uh, counseling and therapy services for children and families. Uh, we have a camps and conferences. We, we provide a summer camp for kids from hard places. Uh, and during the year, we offer conferences and workshops and training for families and for professionals who care for those kinds of kids. And then we do our traditional uh, care ministry, which we've been doing now for a long time. We have a number of uh, venues and settings uh, where we can take kids for a number of reasons that have had to be removed from their, from their family and their home. And the goal is always reunification. And if that's not possible, what, what, is the permanent, what is a permanent type of situation where a child can be connected uh, with a family? Our, our mission is um, every child with a thriving family supported by a faithful community. Wow. Wow. Um, and, and it says on your website, your mission is built on the foundation of connecting with other agencies, churches, and families. 
that this makes us uniquely better for the children and families we serve. So our title today is Maxing Out the Mission. So tell me what that means to you. Well, when I came to Patrick Henry in 2010, uh, there were a number of issues um, that I faced. And in fact, I, I wrote um, down within the first couple of weeks uh, all of the things that I identified as issues that I needed to address. And there were things that um, you, you would probably expect in an organization that was over 50 years old and, and kind of lost its way. Um, there was a low morale and kind of a lack of professionalism. Uh, we were spending more money than we were taking in. Uh, deferred maintenance was kind of at a critical mass. Um, there were a number of things, but there was one of those things in the list that really proved to be uh, the, the key to all the rest. And, and I wrote it down as muddled mission and vision. Nobody could really tell me what the mission was about. Uh, and, and there was no vision other than we want to do better. So uh, as I try to unravel and try to understand uh, the culture of the organization, the history of the organization, uh, what were its strengths and what were its weaknesses, um, I determined to kind of build everything around that idea of mission. We had to build mission. So we had to discover the mission, we had to articulate it, we had to be very clear about it, and we had to communicate it over and over and over again. And then really all the decisions that we needed to make uh, really had to do with um, maxing out that mission. Mm -hmm. So if we needed to cut something, it was about maxing the mission. If we needed to start something or grow something, it was about maxing out uh, the mission. And really everything kind of boiled down to three objectives. I, I needed to, um, um, I needed to build capacity uh, and by building capacity, I could expand our impact. And then by expanding our impact, I thought we could maybe spark a movement. And so those three concepts became um, what I called maxing out the mission. That's impressive. It's um, really hard turning a, a big ship that's been going one direction for a while, isn't it? Yes. Uh, and it's not just the individual institution, but when an institution is part of an industry uh, that also needs to get turned around, it's even more difficult because um, everybody in the industry is going in the same direction, doggedly intent on kind of the original model. And <clears throat> what I, I think helped me was to understand that um, maxing out the model is not the same thing as maxing out the mission. Because models have an expiration date, right? Uh, they have a shelf life. Um, and ours, had, both as an institution, but also as an industry, uh, the model was, um, was uh, either dead or, or, or dying quickly. And we were one of the last in, in the industry to start waking up to that. Wow. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, you may or may not know that for 32 years, I've been working with nonprofit leaders in lots of different genres, some churches, but mostly um, organizations doing the good work outside the church. Right. Um, and there's a lot of them. And there's people of faith uh, doing good work that are not inside a religious institution. Um, so so we're, we're all called to do good work from our different perspectives. 
Um, when I've been in Lynchburg about two and a half years, the, one of the first connections I made was the Lynchburg Symphony. Mm. And, and so recently I stood up when I should have shut up <laughs> and got elected president of the board. So um, I'm building my, my leadership skills on the shoulders of at least the most recent leaders have been most effective in turning this huge ship around. And we're, we're, we're seeing it happen this year in a very substantial way, but it's, it's really thinking about, and, and many of the 750 orchestras in this country are underwater mm. because they're, it's, it's old stuff, old patterns. People need to come yeah. to us. Now we're taking the orchestra to people. We're doing things different. So it's rethinking who we are and is our mission, our mission and are people aligned with the mission? So when I start uh, board meetings, I put up the vision and the mission and ask, is this still where we're going? This is, this is, this is North Star. And then here's our goals for the year. And how do we all play into those yearly goals? So it's really having that, that continuum. Um, so as I find, I've been teaching this stuff for a long time. I developed it in working in 12,000 member churches, you know, develop the systems when there was a whole lot of moving parts. And I had to, had to be the referee for the parts, but also the influencer because mm -hmm. we got to change our habits. And when you're working as a transformational leader in an autocratic system, it's a little harder to turn the boat, but we've done that. So I'm back in the saddle and it's good to see it from both perspectives. Um, fortunately, it's a year, it's a year long gig, <laughs> mm -hmm. but um, it, I get to see it from both perspectives. So it's 73, Robert, I'm still learning. Yep, absolutely. And I learned from every engagement. And when I see a leader says, I got this leadership down pat, I think, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, watch out. <laughs> Lack of self-awareness. So to me, the mission helps people have that North Star. This is where we're going. But then clearly defining your long-term objectives. This is what it looks like when we're successful. So sitting in your seat, it's a long way to ramp up a question like one of these in a press conference, somebody goes on and on and say, ask the question, <laughs> what is your biggest challenge uh, as a leader? You, you came in with a challenge, but I imagine that challenge has, has shifted. And I heard you say capacity building. So that applies to the organization, but does it also apply to you? Sure. Um, it, it's interesting when, when things start changing, uh, the types of complaints uh, that you start hearing and, and of course, um, people are, are, are really experiencing um, a sense of loss. That's, that's what they're really fighting against and because they haven't quite been able to maybe see the new paradigm. And, and um, you know, so the, the speed of change was going rather quickly. I, I, I felt like we didn't have time uh, to navel gaze and we, we just started working right away. Um, and of course, the complaint is we're always changing. Uh, and my response is, well, if you always want to improve, then you always have to change. There's, there's no way to get around that. But what people don't, I think, maybe recognize is that I had to change uh, even more than the organization, right? John Maxwell talks about the law of the lid, right? The organization's only going to go as far as the leader can take it. And so I had to uh, really dig in deep and develop some skills that I didn't have, uh, do some things I hadn't done before, and, and really call on a kind of a, a strength and a courage I didn't always have. Because as I explained earlier in my story, um, 
you know, I experienced a lot of trauma as a child. And I work in the same type of setting where kids are um, recovering from trauma. So it's easy to get triggered. And so if uh, somebody rejected my idea, I, I might feel alone or some old feelings came up. So I had to personally get better um, before I could professionally ad advance and to lead this organization. So I, I would say I've transformed more than the organization has um, because of it. It forced me to. That's very rare, you know. Um, Self-awareness is the biggest gap. There's, there's two, two real big ones. There's numerous, but what I see over and over is lack of self-awareness mm -hmm. and um, not understanding that listening is a primary leadership skill. And, and actually, there's listening with your ears and there's listening with your eyes. So it's four to one. You got one mouth. <laughs> you get two. So um, as a musician, of course, I'm going to lean that way. And I see everything as building a performance ensemble. But really, we're either rehearsing. We have a bad rehearsal in how we do meetings and how we do reviews, how we do things. Or we're having good rehearsals. And, and I see lots of systems that um, aren't working as well. So I've, I've developed uh, the principles, my huge four pillars, principles oh. of leadership. It's foundations, know where you're going and have the skill. Two, relationships, have the best people around you. Three, um, um, have a system. We have really good people, we have really good work, and then we, I've seen so many nonprofit boards that have their hands tied. Good mm -hmm. people want to work, but boom. And we had Lynchburg Symphony Board meeting last night, everybody, was on the edge of their chair saying, I want to help. I want to do something. And so we've come into this commonality of erasing the silos. This was the, the program committee that does concerts said, Hey, we need to do some stuff. So other people said, Hey, I can help with that. And I was so happy to see this ensemble, you know, in a, in a musical ensemble, you, you play off of each other, you listen and you, you fit into the sound. You don't give up your individualism or your own skill set. But what you do is you raise the bar on your own performing because this, there's this synergy of the whole. And then the last one is balance. How do we balance everything, multiple priorities, and then spiritual, physical, mental, mental personal work. You know, I spoke a bit before we went on the air about a pastor that died in the service that, that I work with who really wore himself out and mm -hmm. uh, burned out his body. So there's, there's a duty and delight in caring for self. So speak about um, how do you keep yourself... Um, on that learning edge, that cutting edge of I need to continue. It's what I call continuing improvement as averse to the corporate continuous improvement uh, mm -hmm. consulting model. To me, it's the continuing improvement, the, the duty of the leader to say, I'm going to continue growing because if you stop that, it's going the other way. So what is your discipline of continuing improvement? I, I read a book about every week. Um, and, and not just uh, things in my field, but in other fields and read a lot of stuff about leadership in general. Uh, and I go to conferences. In fact, it was um, um, a global leadership conference about um, five years ago. I was sitting in one of the satellite uh, sites and, uh, and the speaker at that, at that time made a statement that just pierced my soul. He said, the organization will only be as healthy as the leader allows it. Mm -hmm. And I thought he was looking and talking directly to me. Of course he wasn't, but I sure felt it because you know, <clears throat> I was at this kind of critical mass or junk, uh, junction 
in the organization. I, I felt like I just couldn't press through this, this breakthrough that we needed to get healthy as an organization. And I started thinking about what were the things I was doing directly or maybe indirectly that was allowing that um, dysfunction to continue. And I thought of that old um, expression uh, about the one-eyed, uh, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, right? And, and I, I thought of, well, if, if the one-eyed king could have healed his people's blindness, would he? And of course, the assumption is he wouldn't because he'd lose power. But I thought more significantly than that is he would lose his significance, right? Because if they could see, they didn't need him. He, he would have no meaning again. And so I felt like I was the one-eyed king in the line of the blind. And as long as they needed me, uh, I was in charge. Um, and that's why the dysfunction was, was there, right? I, I grew up in a dysfunctional uh, family, in a broken culture. And, and I'd learned to kind of rise above it, but I'd never learned how to make it better. And so when I started focusing on myself, and uh, dealing with some of the self-confidence issues and uh, uh, issues of control, the organization um, started getting better. I, I mean, we were, we were hiring people and we're hiring good people, but uh, there just wasn't that breakthrough until um, I, I, I allowed the, the, my blind people to be healed and uh, not get in the way of that. Does that make any sense? Makes a lot of sense. And there, there is a leader that wants everybody, you know, kept at a disadvantage, which is so contrary to leadership to me. Right. Yeah, you know, if, if you're the smartest person in the room, run. <laughs> right. It was um, uh, one of my new hires. It, it, it kind of said that, uh, that we were living in the old uh, sitcom, Father Knows Best. Uh-huh. And everybody was seeing me as father who knows best. And that's why we weren't getting anywhere. So I, I had to um, um, get better myself and, and learn to trust the people that I'd hired. Um, and that's when we really started turning the corner. So um, I champion the uh, style of leadership called transformational leadership. What, uh, what do you lean toward? Um, I don't know if there's a name for it, uh, but for me, because uh, I'm not a uh, exceptionally smart person, I'm smart enough to know that vision and passion rule the day. And um, if if there's enough uh, margin and uh, enough of a plan, and you get enough good people around it, if uh, as long as they have vision and passion, the thing will take a life of its own. What you just described fits the model of transformational leadership. Right it's in the realm of servant leader because yeah. it's not about you. It's about the vision, but right. it's getting things off your plate. It's getting good people. It's equipping them and it's modeling. And so what you've described fits the culture of, of leadership. Mm. Oh, very good. So I, I embrace two methodologies. That's the culture of leadership. So sort of like building the orchestra that functions and performs at a high level. The other one is, who am I the leader? So understanding myself, and I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Murray Bowen, Bowen systems, Bowen family systems, but it's a whole lot of self-revelation in that. And it's about maintaining 
this awareness, but also being open to improving ourselves because also what you described, we can't change other people. We change ourselves and people respond to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the basic, basic um, tenets of leadership. So um, how many people are employed at, at your organization? Oh, at any given time, we're, we're between 65, 70 folks in the summer with our summer staff for camp, we can be in up in the eighties in terms of number of staff. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I know what it's like. It was my church staff, one of my, my churches. So there's a lot of different gifts and talents. There's also a lot of chance for misfire. Do you ever get them all together at once just to do some sort of training or idea or relationship building or anything? And it, do you, and what do you do there? Yeah, so we, uh, as an organization, are spread out all over South uh, Central Virginia, down in Danville and Farmville and Bedford and Roanoke. So, uh, but um, every other month, we all gather at Heck Creek Camp, which we operate and, and, and run and have an all-day staff meeting. And it's really not about um, um, the specifics of announcements and details, although there's some of that. Uh, it's really a pep rally. It's it's really about uh, encouraging the staff, celebrating our victories, uh, celebrating ourselves and 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 the stars in the organization that may have accomplished something um, uh, really neat. Uh, and it's about the fellowship and and just being together as a team. So we usually do some kind of team involvement. Uh, of course, we eat together, and there's always at least one training opportunity that our staff have uh, to improve themselves at that meeting. And how many do you have in your upper level of leadership that actually manage other or lead other groups? And so in our organization, we, we try to have a five uh, layers of leadership. So there's executive, uh, of course, there's the trustees who are at uh, one level of, uh, of leadership. Uh, there's uh, what we call the executive leadership for the chief officers. So besides myself, I have a chief operating officer and a chief uh, program officer. And then we have uh, another layer of uh, what we call a ministry council. And these are the directors of the various programs uh, that we operate in. Um, the executive and, and the ministry council meet um, regularly uh, every Tuesday morning and spend about a half a day working out the details, uh, the tactics and the strategies and, and reporting uh, on what we're doing, uh, make sure we're, we're meeting our, our metrics and our goals. And then we have a manager's kind of director's uh, level. And then, of course, this, the online staff, uh, we consider them leaders uh, themselves, and we invest in them uh, in, as they lead uh, their clients and, and their own work. In my work with leaders, there's um, discipline-specific, for lack of a better way to express it, there's discipline-specific knowledge, knowledge that's specific to your organization. But there's also a body of generic knowledge. I mean, you could, you could lead a police department with generic knowledge. Mm. I mean, you wouldn't mm -hmm. have the specifics, but you'd have people that know the specifics. So sure. in your seat, um, you had a history of working in this industry. So it would be advantageous to have the, the specific discipline knowledge to run the organization. So, so is that helpful or is that, does that a, a challenge sometimes because um, having been in the church, there's insider eyeballs. 
and it takes somebody from outside to say, well, why are you doing it that way? Yep. So what are the benefits and the challenges? Because there's a lot of people, like I'm, I'm a conductor, I'm, I'm leading the board. So there's, there's industry specific, discipline specific knowledge that I have. Um, and, and so it's, it's interesting because most of the groups that I work with, I have no clue what they do. Mm. And it really doesn't matter. It's about the functioning of human beings in, uh, in there. So what are the benefits? Because there's a lot of people that are, that are in there because of their passion about their mission, but they're compromised because they don't have the other skill set. Now, you've talked about how you've, you've built your skill set for leadership. You came in with some, but you've accelerated that. So what are the benefits and the challenges? Um, maybe you never thought about this, putting you on the spot, but what are the benefits and the challenges challenges of leading an organization where you're deeply embedded in the, the knowledge of, of the work of the organization. And so what I, I explain this uh, very thing to a uh, new employees. I, um, I make sure that I sit and visit with all new employees and then I visit with them again in 90 days to see how they're doing. The first time I sat down with them, um, I, I tell them before you become a prisoner of the system, I want you to write down all the things that you see with fresh eyes. Oh, wow. Right? Oh, wow. And if they take it seriously, they'll come back and say, well, you know, as an outsider looking in, I didn't understand this and I didn't understand that. And I go, well, thank you for sharing that. And it often opens my eyes to the things that we're blind ourselves about. That is, you know, um, I think it was Steve Jobs who said, we don't hire good people and tell them what to do we hire good people, train them, and then they tell us what to do. Yeah, yeah. It's also why I, I, I make sure that I read uh, uh, books outside of my industry, uh, leaders doing other kinds of work, because as you said, right, leadership skills are transferable, there's transferable knowledge, and uh, so sometimes seeing how somebody did something in another industry helps me to start thinking outside of my own paradigm. Um, and in child welfare, it, it's an um, industry that's led mostly by social workers. And social workers have uh, their own value set and they have their own paradigm um, and are very committed to those things. But sometimes they can't see that they themselves are the problem um, because they can't think outside of the paradigm that they were um, educated on, right? Uh, I think we probably see it in medicine and, and everywhere is you think like the way that you've been trained and mm -hmm. uh, you may actually be the problem. <laughs> Try telling your doctor or your preacher that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In this current stage of life, I have the pleasure of visiting lots of churches and um, having deep dives uh, in practical and, 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 and intellectual study, the design and, and leadership of worship, um, which was my responsibility, is a very clear theology and tradition of what you do that's in, it's transformative, not transactional. Mm -hmm. And right. I see lots of transactional events that we call worship. So we've sort of, um, the, the mainline Protestant churches have grown themselves down with some poor insider viewpoints. Mm -hmm. This is what we do, yeah. this is what we inherited. So the health of that sector is really challenged right now because we're not willing to look outside the, the discipline. For, I, I started a series, a blog called The Shrinking Church. Mm. And um, what is it we're doing that's shooting ourselves in the foot? 
But that's not, the church doesn't have a lock on that. Now imagine there's a lots of people in your industry, lots of organizations in your industry that are challenged with their work. I find in my work around the country that the, one of the number one challenges leaders lift up to me, may or may not be true everywhere, but it's the ones I talk to, they're challenged with leader burnout. You know, I've, I'm really stressed with too much to do and too little time. Um, the level of board functioning, we have really good people, but they're not really functioning at the level they want to be or I need them to be. And then the challenge of how do we continue to support putting gas in this car, the funding that runs the engine. Oh, um, so those are, those are some of the top challenges. Do you want to speak to any of those? Um, it's all about capacity, right? About building the margins in our lives and, and in our organizations so that we can um, do something beyond what we're currently doing. Um, we've, we're at a point in our organization uh, where we really want to break outside this paradigm of, of old thinking. Um, you know, we, we work in an industry that's uh, dominated by um, a government-run foster care. The whole system is based on uh, the laws, um, the regulations, and the funding uh, that comes from the government. And yet every time you turn around, you're reading an article or some research that just talks about how broken the system is. And so then there's all this reform, uh, uh, calls for comprehensive foster care reform. Uh, and they want to change this regulation or change this law or add more money to the system. And I'm getting to the point where I, 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 I don't want to fix it. I want to replace it. Uh, I just want to do something different. Uh, but nobody can talk like that because it, it's very difficult to break outside of the paradigm, particularly when you're funding is, is coming from all of that and determines how you do it and what you do and when you do it and how you report it. Um, and yet we stand there and, you know, we scream at the wind um, for, for bringing all this stuff to us. And um, I, I, I'm convinced that, that the funding issue uh, is what often keeps a nonprofit trapped in a paradigm because of the fear of what happens to funding. Has lots of interpretations to it. <laughs> now, did I hear that you get um, funding from government, government funding for your work? We, we do not. Patrick Henry has never taken government money. Okay. Right? It's the spirit of Patrick Henry. Give me liberty or give me death. And so we've always been an independent player in it. But the foster care system itself uh, has become a child welfare industrial complex. Billions of dollars are exchanged um, annually uh, to keep this thing going. It's, it's a, a self-serving ecosystem that will protect itself no matter what. Um, and so here we are, this little organization, South Central Virginia, don't, we don't depend on any of that and we can think outside the box. <laughs> but getting people inside the box and say, come on out, it really, it's, it's great out here. Uh, you'll love it. Uh, it's hard, it's very difficult. So the people you need to get out of the box, would that be staff? Would it be funders? Who, who would it be? Well, here in the organization and my trustees are outside of the box now. Um, but, but even, you know, these, even private nonprofits um, are often um, uh, committed to this um, government funding, right? They, they have contracts and they got to keep their beds full. 
Uh, so when you talk to them about uh, what would it take to end foster care to make foster care obsolete? Well, first response is, well, how will we fill our beds and how will we keep the contracts? And I, I say, are you really seriously telling me that, that uh, you'd rather have kids uh, abused and neglected and come in the system so that you can take care of them? Or could we take the same resources and the same energy we're currently doing and go upstream and really try to prevent this thing from happening? Uh, and then, and can we divert kids out of that system? And for those, and for those kids who do in the system, can we replace it with a privately funded faith-based alternative? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do. Wow. Um, are you, um, are you familiar with the work of uh, Rise Against Hunger? Yes. Um, do you know um, Ray Buchanan? I do not. So their their vision, Ray lives here. He's the founder. Oh. But he's been called back to being the face and the speaker for for this. And their their vision is to end hunger in our lifetime. Yeah. And so that's, to me, a really powerful vision and actually by um, 2030 they, they've got some very serious projections they talk about why but it, it's really in, in looking outside a box that makes it work and it's a it's a global it's a global movement as you know so it's it's looking at how do we not only feed people but teach people how to how to feed themselves absolutely so just as building capacity in an organization makes a difference for that organization, we got to build capacity in people to make the difference in their own lives. So they don't depend on nonprofits like ourselves and especially don't depend on government. But it's, it goes back to the one-eyed king. Well, what happens if people can see and take care of themselves all of a sudden they won't need us? That's what keeps us from doing the better good. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so it really takes somebody that's a champion for the vision um, as well. And sometimes it's the same person, but Ray did that for a while, but now he's external. Um, and they've just hired a new CEO. Um, it takes someone inside that knows how to connect the dots. It's the performance piece of this that makes it work. And with 150 employees scattered all around the country, there's, um, you know, there's a pretty big footprint with, with, with that. And so this this challenge of um, continuing to look past the limitations, I find that the word itself, nonprofit, which is not a IRS term, the, but it's become the industry. We call this the nonprofit exchange because it, people know what the industry is. But the word itself, of course, is a lie. And the, and the word itself fosters this scarcity thinking. Yes, absolutely. So how do you, how, how are you a, an emissary or a prophet um, to think, think in different terms, both internally and externally? How do you, you know, you know what I'm talking about? How we, how yeah. we, we're not profit, we're poor, we can't pay for things, we can't do much, blah, 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 because we've been taught that. Yeah. So one of the challenges when I came was there was only one uh, person who was, uh, who spent full time raising money for the organization. Uh, that was just one person. And I knew that to build capacity, I'd have to put more resources at raising money. But when you start putting resources at raising money, right, the question is, well, shouldn't we be using that money to help more people? 
I said, well, if you let me raise more money, I can help more people. Uh, so now we have uh, an institutional advancement department of, of six full-time people and two part-time people who do nothing but raise money for this organization so that we can have the margins uh, to do what we want to do. Uh, yeah, you got to break outside of that starvation cycle uh, or we'll never have the capacity to make a difference. Well, there's this myth. Are you familiar with the um, work of Dan Palata? The way we think about charity is dead wrong. No, I, I will look at, sounds like my next book. Oh yeah, you did, you look at the TED Talk, Dan Pallotta. Um okay. he, he says we, we have the scarcity thinking. Yes. And um, breaking out of that mold. He thinks we, we can't pay, as an industry, we think we can't pay decent salaries. As an industry, we think we can't spend money on marketing. As an industry, we're guy, where people look at our overhead. It's the myth of the overhead. And what you've done is invest resources in raising money to accomplish your mission. That's a good business model. Absolutely. It's, and it, it, we got to think about funding more than fundraising, right? We, we even got to think of, because uh, sometimes I think this is a lot of activity uh, to raise money to do what we do. Uh, so there are, are there other funding sources? And so one of the things that we've been blessed as an organization is that we do have a nice endowment. And the more that endowment grows, um, uh, the more we have um, to do what we, we do. And so you can either ask somebody to give a $25,000 gift, which we'll spend all this year on some activity, or we can ask them to give us $25,000 to put in the endowment, and that equals a lifetime of giving. That will always have an impact. Um, it's the long view, you gotta play the long game right? The temptation is to take that money and spend it on current needs. Um, but if you can build that endowment, uh, that is really what gives you independence and freedom. That's a legacy gift. Absolutely. Um, so it, it's, it's a, the ultimate sustainability. So um, explain to people who may not know what the function of endowment, you know, it's, it's money that's, that's locked into an investment. Yeah. So explain why that's important and how that that benefits the organization. And I should clarify that we have a reserve fund that acts like endowment, very few dollars were actually designated in that, um, in that capacity. Uh, when, I arrived, when I arrived, we had about $17 million in that reserve fund. And we, we drew about 4.5% out annually. Um, and, and we use that to um, fund our administration. So we can tell our donors that uh, every dollar they give will go to meeting the need of a child and a family. Uh, and that's our commitment. And, um, you know, since then, we've grown that um, to over $44 million. And that's what's allowing us to um, have the capacity to think outside the box and to break the paradigm because we have the ability to. Right when when you don't have the resources and you're trapped in that starvation cycle, it's hard to think beyond um, the moment. Um, I, I like to ask people a question that uh, was once asked me: if if money was not an issue and you were guaranteed success, what would you do? Um, and I I once asked that uh, to a director of a very old nonprofit. Uh, and the response is, well, I, I would get, I would, <laughs> I would get the furnace fixed, and if I had any money left over, I'd buy new curtains for the dining room. Um, 
the whole question taps into that Maslow hierarchy of need. She was so overwhelmed with daily needs that she couldn't think about what she would do if money was not an issue and guarantee was a success. All she could think about was getting the furnace fixed because that's what we've got to have now. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, raising money specifically for that reserve fund, for that endowment fund, and then leaving it alone so that it can grow and that you draw off, you know, like we do four and a half percent. It um, it's a wonderful foundation for an annual budget. And then when you're raising money, you're you're raising money uh, to meet the needs and to and to grow and to expand. And once we really caught on to that, um, right, I I I believe. Um, I'm careful when I tell this, so I'm telling it to you now, so I guess it's going to be out. But my goal is in 10 years from now that that fund will be $100 million. Mm -hmm. If it's $100 million, it will fund everything that we're currently doing right now, everything. So then the future generation that takes over after me, whatever money they raise will be for their uh, vision and for their passion to grow the organization to the next level. That's really that's a powerful statement. And I do believe that there's, there's this um, commitment to a goal that's, that's shared that enables it to happen. Mm-hmm. So how are people going to know? We're, I, I run across a lot of leaders who say, yeah, I have my goals in my head. I don't want to write them down because I might not make them and I don't want to be embarrassed, <laughs> which is defeats the whole, the whole thing. So you have to write them down so they don't morph into something different just out of convenience. Yep. But there's a commitment and discipline with that is to say, here's where I'm going. And then what really makes it work, there are two things that make goals work in my book. Um, understanding the value of how, it's, yeah, you get a lot of money, then what? So what's the, the value of, of getting the money? So it's the benefit to the organization. You, so it's what benefits you and the organization. Uh, we have to have the specificity where we're going, but it's the benefit that matters. And the second thing that makes it work is sharing it. So what you just demonstrated is what I call vulner, vulnerability as a leader. We yep. just make ourselves vulnerable and that makes us more effective. And so publicly stating this is where we're going to be um, gives it some energy. Oh, thank you. I, 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 and I hope that's true. All right, we got to raise money for t- today's needs, but we also as leaders got to think about raising money for tomorrow's needs. The ones that we're not going to be here to meet, but you know they're coming and they're challenges that we ha- can't even imagine right now. And what a blessing that would be to the next generation that they have the margins and the resources to take on those challenges. Absolutely. So that's, that's really good planning, really good leadership to have that in place. So there's, there's that sustainability um, in the organization itself. And then the money goes to the, to the work of the organization. That's a very good business model. There's too many nonprofit leaders that haven't really studied any business principles and don't understand how that money functions or the discipline of, that model. Now we have a lot more rules about it in a nonprofit world, but understanding that whole paradigm of how do we run a business, I think it's, it's so essential. Um, so in, um, I forgot my next question. So I just, I was enamored by that, that whole let's state and be bold about stating it. Oh, um, James Allen wrote a really little book. It's a great resource. You can read it in an hour if that long. It's called As a Man Thinketh. Of course it was written. Oh, yes. I know that very well. 
Yeah, it was in male dominant language from the era, but but in there um, with the language changed, it's a uh, people don't want uh, want to change their circumstances, but are unwilling to change themselves. They therefore remain bound. Mm. So that's one thing that your 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 narrative reminds me of. The other one is you know you state this, so we're going to attract people that understand that. And he also said, we don't attract what we need. We attract what we are so being bold and being clear. We're attracting people that could, that could fit into that mold. So, um, and Carnegie, uh, talked to Napoleon Hill about goals. You're writing them down. You begin attracting the manifestation of that goal. Mm-hmm. And so articulating it is so crucial. I'm, uh, I've known, sorry, I know a lot of your folks on your top staff, from different places, mm-hmm. but I um, know very little about Patrick Henry, so I'll have to come visit and learn about it. Well, please do. Uh, it's, um, um, I'm impressed with what you're talking about, and this is, uh, there are a lot of sound bites that have come through what you're talking, and we transcribe it. Um, we will, something just changed, I don't know what it was. We, we'll, we will pull out some of those sound bites, because there were some really good ones, and you probably don't even remember, remember um, what they were because it was in passing when you talk about so what's ahead um you're continuing to to grow the organization so what's the biggest challenge in your industry that that you've already talked about some of it we need to think differently but we the tax laws are changing the culture is really divided we got this dualistic us us and them and people are not talking they're yelling at each other and it's infected the church, it's infected the culture somewhat um, from the government down. What's the biggest challenge in this funny culture we're in for an organization like yours? Just as I mentioned, my, um, my financial goal for the organization, um, in, in June of this year, we're going to launch a campaign that we call Vision 30, which is a 10-year initiative that by June of 2030, Every child in Lynchburg and the four surrounding counties will either be safe in their own home or with a substitute family that's supported by a faith community. In other words, we want to see those numbers in foster care at or near zero. And so very much like the the challenge that uh, Kennedy gave to the nation about putting a man on the moon and bring him back safely by the end of the decade, that's kind of uh, this vision is is our equivalent uh, to that. And so it's causing us to reorder ourselves and thinking, what would we really have to do uh, to make that happen? And of course, there's internal challenges. um, But for us to really do this is for us to realize, first of all, we can't do that all by ourselves. It really would have to be a community-wide initiative. And there would have to be a collaboration on a level that... um, I usually don't see in the nonprofit world, right? I once heard somebody you say that collaboration was the unnatural act of uh, two or more consenting adults. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my! Collaboration is unnatural. We we just don't want to do that. I mean, we'll show up to a meeting that's that's called a collaboration meeting, but we're really checking out our competition to see what they're doing, and maybe still ideas. So that would be the first challenge is how do we really build a culture of collaboration in the community where everybody is doing their part to make this vision happen. 
And then how do you sustain that in a volatile world where it's so easy to get cross at each other over things like politics and funding and, and um, uh, tactics, et cetera. So figuring those things out is, is, is probably our biggest challenge. But because we have this really cool goal, it, it, it motivates us to, to work out and around those obstacles. And I, and I find that, that um, so far people are responding pretty well to that goal. It's hard to argue against that goal. Uh, it's easy to argue about the specifics and uh, who's going to do what and who's going to be in control and those kind of things. Um, so, you know, getting nonprofit leaders like myself to, you know, set aside the ego and, and put, put aside the branding and can we just all agree that we're going to um, do our part to do this and let's collaborate and, and work together to make sure there's no gaps in services for these kids and families. It's funny you mentioned that I'm working on Lynchburg specific collaborative um, model. Mm -hmm. So I have to, I have to share that with you. Um, so Robert, I'm going to talk about our sponsor a minute. Go ahead. And I'm going to keep bringing it back to you to uh, leave a closing thought. We have leaders that are writing down your sound bites. We have leaders that want to get an example of something and you've given a lot of good ideas, but what do you want to leave people with a challenge or a tip or an idea or just a closing thought? And I'll come back to you before we close out this really helpful interview. Um, the nonprofit exchange, nonprofit performance magazine, and the community online community for community builders that CenterVision supports the work of nonprofit leaders everywhere. We're doing worthy work, but you know we need to be in a place where we're talking to other leaders of organizations like ourselves, away from the clutter of social media. So the the work of CenterVision Leadership Foundation and providing free or low-cost resources to nonprofit leaders is supported with our corporate sponsors, the magazine, this podcast, the online community, um, live trainings. We do those at a fraction of the cost because we have corporate sponsors. The sponsor we'll talk about today is Word Sprint. Word Sprint's in uh, Christiansburg and with Phil of Virginia. They help us stay connected with our tribe. We send 30% of our strategy is a message, the right message to the right person, another 30%. We know, we know our contacts in a regular frequency. So they know about the good work we're doing and it's in their hands. And then an email is triggered when it's delivered and says, hey, George, look at the article on page five of the magazine. There's something you might be interested in. And so they get it on the email and they get it in their hands and the magazine is timeless, so people keep copies of the magazines. But our goal is to help you do a better job. So Word Sprint uh, could help you retain your relationships with your tribe, your donors specifically, who will continue to be donors and even raise their donations. He's got uh, two and a half million campaigns and 20 years of experience and research to show you how it works. So Word Sprint, like in fast, wordsprint.com is the website. Bill Gilmer and his team would be glad to consult with you about how this works for your organization. And you could be anywhere. He works with colleges and nonprofits all over the United States. So it really doesn't matter. He's got a 
really fancy mailing house and a really great print shop and a design shop. Wordsprint.com. Let's Centervision do the work that brings value to nonprofit leaders and clergy in cities around the country. Robert, what thought do you want to leave people with today? Um, <clears throat> when I came to Patrick Henry, I was confused at first uh, about the difference between footprint and impact. And I kept trying to expand the footprint, right? More locations, another building, more square footage. That's a lot different than impact. We actually have less square footage and fewer buildings, but I think we're growing in our impact. That is what is really important. Impact, not footprint. Wise words. What's the result of our work? And that's what attracts the money, I think, Robert, is the impact mm -hmm. of our work. Absolutely. Sorry? Yes, absolutely. Not the size of our buildings or or any of that kind of it's it's um right, the power of our impact. Thank you for being with us for the nonprofit uh nonprofit exchange today. This is multiple years of interviews like this with leaders that have real life stories to share. You can find them at thenonprofitexchange.org. You can get the podcast on your, on your smartphone, on iTunes or Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcast. So you always have access to it. We're here live every Tuesday at two with a new person. Find us at thenonprofitexchange.org and review the past and stay in touch with us because there'll be one thing that'll change your life that'll come up on one of our interviews. So thank you for being here today. Robert, thank you for being our guest. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.